It was a quiet summer weekend on Manhattan's Upper East Side when an 82-year-old widow named Irene Silverman disappeared without a trace. But Irene, the red-headed and flamboyant widow of multimillionaire real estate broker Sam Silverman, wasn't your typical little old lady. She always had something going on. Irene was tiny, just five feet tall, but she had a big personality. This was not someone who could disappear quietly. She was a former ballerina and socialite who always had a house full of people. When her husband Sam died, he had left Irene the 12,500-square-foot mansion at 20 East 65th Street. It was valued at seven to $10 million 20 years ago. This house is extraordinary, a local landmark. Irene and Sam had no children together, so she broke up the townhouse into several apartments and she filled the empty rooms with guests. She charged them around $6,000 per month rent, and she thought of them as her friends. Over the years, Irene's tenants included artists, celebrities, and creative types, including British royalty, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Shaka Khan, according to an article in Vanity Fair. Reading about Irene's townhouse, it seemed like something out of a movie. It seems like it was an absolutely extraordinary place to live. Irene also had a staff who were like family to her, and a lot of them had worked for her for years. She was older, so she pretty much never left home without one of them with her. So when her staff couldn't get in touch with her on July 5th, they knew immediately that something was very wrong. The last time anyone saw Irene alive had been that morning. Now, even in the pre-pandemic days, the wealthy parts of Manhattan, so the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, and Tribeca, turn into ghost towns during the summer months. Everyone goes away on European vacations or decamps to their second homes in the Hamptons or Connecticut. So Irene's tenants were all away that weekend. On July 4th, she had a couple of friends over for dinner. The topic of conversation, the friends would let her tell police, was the weird and shady tenant who'd been living in apartment 1B and how Irene was looking forward to getting rid of him. The friends left just after midnight. That left Irene and just one staff member, a maid. The next morning, at around 11 a.m., Irene asked her to walk the dog around the roof garden and to run some errands. She was wearing her pajamas and house slippers. When the maid returned, Irene was gone. Police were called, and they came to the house immediately. They found no signs of a struggle. Several of Irene's friends and tenants mentioned Manny Guerin, the shady tenant. Irene's staff told police that since this guy showed up about a month ago, he had been acting really strange. He turned his head to avoid the security cameras, He refused to let the cleaning staff into his room. And he had a strange older woman there at all hours of the night. You could hear her whispering behind the door, and Irene had felt like she was being watched. She wanted these people out. So police knocked on Manny Guerin's door, but he was gone too. Nearly two days went by before the police figured out that Manny Guerin did not exist. And the hunt for Irene would lead police to a notorious mother and son grifting team Millions of dollars stolen, human trafficking, torture, and two other dead bodies. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar.
Police investigating Irene Silverman's disappearance were looking for the shady tenant named Manny Guerin. After 48 hours, they figured out that this was a fake name. The NYPD detectives learned that Manny Guerin was really 23-year-old Kenny Kimes and that he and his mother, Shantae Kimes, were wanted in connection with a murder in Las Vegas and a stolen car in Utah. Now, there has been a lot written about Shantae and Kenny Kimes. There's even been a movie, which is excellent, by the way, starring Mary Tyler Moore as Shantae. I want to talk about this case because it's hugely important from a red-collar crime perspective. This case is a perfect example of how someone with a narcissistic personality and a habit for committing white-collar crime can escalate to murder over the years. It shows that it's not an aberration. When you're dealing with this personality type, really it seems like a natural next step. This is a chance to study the mind of a red-collar criminal throughout her life and see how her behavior escalated from fraud to red-collar murder. And because she was a woman, a little bit flamboyant and ridiculous at times, a lot of people underestimated Shantae Kimes. Many of those people have lifelong scars, and at least three of them are dead. When most people think about the Kimes case, they picture Kenny and Shantae, arms linked, talking to the media, talking to Larry King. A lot of the media ran headlines like Richie Rich Killer and Mommy and Clyde. But a lot of people don't know that Shantae Kimes had another son named Kent Walker from a marriage to a man named Ed Walker. Kent was Kenny's older half-brother. He was 12 years old when his little brother was born, and he's written an incredible memoir called Son of a Grifter, The Twisted Tale of Shantae and Kenny Kimes that provides a window into the mind of a ruthless criminal sociopath and what it was like to be raised by her. She changed her name and the pronunciation of her name multiple times throughout her life, probably to stay a step ahead of the law. She was Sandy, then Santee, then eventually Sante, and then Shantae. But she introduced herself as Shantae in the court testimony that was used as the source material for this episode. So that's how we're going to refer to her. Kent said that as long as he can remember, his mom had been pulling scams. His involvement with them, he said, started with shoplifting. She would encourage him to participate in the stealing or act as a decoy, and she would reward him when he helped her. It's really sad because he talks about how he knew the whole time that this was wrong, but his mom felt no guilt about any of these things. She rewarded him when he would lie and steal. He tells one story that I believe shows Shantae's philosophy of life. He said when he was a young teen, he was a surfer, and he stole a surfboard from a neighbor. The neighbor caught him and brought him back home to his mother. They said they wouldn't press charges if the parents would handle it. Now, this is a scene that plays out in a lot of young teenagers' homes, but the way she handled it was very different from the way most parents handle it. Kent said that she told the neighbor that, not to worry, she would be handling this. But then, when she closed the door, she started screaming at him about how stupid he was. He said he apologized and promised to never steal anything again. He wrote, quote, "'An expression of mockery spread over my mother's face. "'In her eyes, I was a sap.'" I don't care if you steal anything, she said. Just don't be so stupid as to get caught, end quote. This basically summed it up. Shantae Kimes claimed that she was born in Oklahoma City in 1934 to a Dutch-American mother and an East Indian father. She said that her father had abandoned the family and that her mother turned to sex work to support her children. Now, often during her life, Shantae would claim to have exotic heritage when it benefited her, so... Her family has said that they could never be sure if she's telling the whole truth. 
she was hanging around in Studio City, California, at a young age, when she met a woman from Carson City, Nevada. This woman's brother-in-law and his wife couldn't have children. So the woman ended up bringing Shantae to live in Carson City with their family. Now Shantae had parents, and Shantae Singers became Sandra Chambers. Sandra went to high school in Carson City, where she developed a lifelong love for emulating and dressing like the actress Elizabeth Taylor. Like Liz, she had dark hair and olive complexion and these large, striking eyes. And like Liz, she definitely had a way with men. She met Ed Walker, who would become her future husband, in high school. They were high school sweethearts. So Ed was shocked when Shantae married another man named Lee Powers. But that marriage fell apart before long. And in 1957, she married Ed Walker. They had a son, Kent, and the family settled in Sacramento, California. Ed became a contractor, and Shantae started scamming. First, she developed a taste for arson and collecting insurance money. And she always spent more than she could afford. She would rack up tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. Ed would pay it off and apologize. She continued to lie and steal and have affairs with wealthy men with money. She was looking for her ultimate sponsor. Shantae and Ed separated in 1967. Kent wrote in his book, quote, Except for Lee Powers, every man who was ever in love with Shantae Kimes is either still in love or dead, end quote. And he said that all through his life, Ed Walker, his father, refused to say a lot of bad things about Shantae. It really is amazing how she had a lifelong hold over these men. Kent remembers his mom enlisting his help on shopping trips. She would stuff everything from jewelry and lunch meat into her purse. And for Shantae, it seemed to be the high of getting away with it more than the merchandise. Throughout her life, the irony was that she had plenty of money, but somehow, no matter how much she had, it was never enough. She always seemed terrified of being broke. And she wasn't afraid to escalate things. Once, when a female security guard caught Shantae red-handed, Kent said his mom balled up her fist and hit him in the mouth. He started bleeding, and she started screaming and blamed the guard for hitting him. She got away with it. Shantae had a rap sheet that included petty theft, shoplifting, and grand theft on her record by the time she finally met her millionaire. In the early 70s, Shantae met Ken Kimes, a real estate developer who built motels. She met him on a scam, too, by pretending to be a journalist with a local magazine who was covering well-to-do businessmen. They fell in love instantly. Ken Kimes was 18 years older than Shantae, and she captivated him. He was apparently sexually obsessed with her. They moved in together, and finally Shantae had her dream mansion. And it was around that time that she started acquiring maids. I say acquiring rather than hiring, because Shantae never paid them. When she needed a cleaner, she would drive across the border with Kent and her husband. They would pick up an undocumented young woman in Mexico, put her in the trunk of the car, and smuggle her back into California. The young women believed that they would be living as part of a family in America. And again, probably because Shantae was female and pretty charming, she managed to convince these women that they'd be safe. So they thought they were getting the good life, but they found hell on earth. Shantae beat these women. She locked them in their rooms, and she forced them to perform hard labor with no breaks. And over time, Shantae's treatment of the maids got worse and worse. She actually burned one of them with an iron. When Shantae was 40, she had Kenneth Kimes Jr., who they called Kenny. 
According to his half-brother, Kent, Kenny was a cute, smart, and happy child, and his parents doted on him. Unfortunately, though, over the years, Shantae's habit of keeping her kids isolated from having other friends and from the outside world and being really enmeshed with her started to warp Kenny's versions of right and wrong. Over the years, between lawyers' fees, moving to avoid various lawsuits and trouble Shantae was getting into, Shantae and Ken blew through millions of dollars. And Shantae always kept everyone on edge. There always seemed to be a crisis. They were always moving. She was always being persecuted by someone. Of course, she was the one committing the crime, but she was always the victim. Both Ken and Shantae started drinking more and more, and their home life deteriorated. In 1985, Shantae and Ken were arrested and charged with violating federal anti-slavery laws. Ken took a plea bargain and got off with a $75,000 fine. But Shantae continued to insist that she had done nothing wrong, a pattern that would continue throughout her life, no matter how horrible her crimes became. She went to prison, and for a few years, life at home without her seemed almost normal. But she was released in 1989 and immediately started grifting again. In 1994, Ken Kimes died, presumably of a heart attack. Now, Ken had been married before Shantae and had children from his first marriage. But Shantae had been on a lifelong campaign to keep Ken isolated from his family and friends. She had insisted that she and Kent and Kenny were his real family and that his former family, who she called the Creeps, were just out to steal his money. When Ken Kimes died, it seemed that Shantae and Kenny's last link to any kind of a moral compass died with him. Shantae was becoming more and more panicked about money and convinced that Ken had hidden money from her. She had, of course, already taken care of this by forging multiple wills. The last one left pretty much everything to her. After his death, she started to spiral. She forged documents and took him to the bank to try to access Ken's safety deposit box, but she couldn't find these so-called missing millions and she refused to accept the fact that she may have just spent all the money. She did have some money. She was left with about $600,000 in cash and a paid-off house. During this time, she tried to reinvent herself again. She became known as Princess Shantae and had business cards made with that printed on them and reinvented herself as a longevity consultant. She continued to be over the top. She had a lot of plastic surgery, wore a lot of makeup, and never stopped trying to scam men. Kenny was around 20 at this time, and after a lifetime of being Shantae's best friend and confidant, he was spoiled and entitled and refused to get a regular job. Kent went to the military and started work as a vacuum cleaner salesman, and he offered to let his brother work with him, but his mother said that Kenny couldn't do that kind of work. He was just far too smart for that. Not surprisingly, Kenny had trouble relating to people his own age. He ended up dropping out of college and became his mother's full-time companion. He helped her look for the missing money. They did find one account with some money in it. It was at First Cayman Bank in the Cayman Islands. So they forged faxes signed with Ken's name, demanding the money from his account. That's when she convinced a man named Syed Ahmed, a 48-year-old officer at the bank, to meet them in the Bahamas. Syed went out to dinner with Shantae and Kenny. He walked out of that dinner at around 10 p.m. No one ever saw him alive again. Then there was David Kadzen, a family friend who had helped Shantae out of jams for years. She called David her guardian angel more than once. 
Shantae owned a house on Geronimo Way in Las Vegas. She'd lived there on and off over the years. In 1992, according to Kent Walker, David allowed Ken and Shantae to put his name on the title of the house. This was in order to hide that asset from a lawyer who Ken hadn't paid. David did this as a favor and assumed that they would just take back ownership of the house. But in early 1998, he found out to his horror that he was still listed as owner of that property and that he had a $280,000 mortgage taken out in his name. He called his bank, but Shantae had already taken $180,000 of that and moved it offshore. Shortly after that, the Geronimo Way house burned to the ground. Once again, Shantae had decided to torture property and try to get the insurance money. But again, David got screwed because Shantae and Kenny had taken out a new insurance policy on the house just a few days before, so they were the beneficiaries. David told the bank the signature was not his, that it had been forged. The walls were closing in on Shantae. That's when Kenny and a man named Sean Little, one of the homeless drifters Shantae kept in her orbit, paid David a visit. While Sean Little waited in the car, Kenny went inside the house. Now, this was a longtime family friend who he had known for years and thought of as kind of an uncle. Yet he shot him execution style in the back of the head. Kenny and Sean carried David's body to his car, a green Jaguar, put it in the trunk, and dumped it in a dumpster near LAX. By this point, Shantae and Kenny were getting desperate. Irene Silverman was actually their second choice of victim. Originally, they picked another woman in Manhattan, but she refused Kenny as a tenant. And before that, they were living in Bel Air. They answered an ad from a wealthy, eccentric older woman on El Vito Drive who was looking for a roommate. The woman thought that Shantae seemed like a sweetheart and would be a good fit. But when Shantae showed up, she had Kenny and one of her other homeless drifters, Robert McCarran, with her. She told the woman that Robert was her butler. And in a scene straight out of the ending of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, she told Robert McCarran that he should basically pretend to be mute. After killing David, Shantae and Kenny knew the clock was ticking. Their behavior got more bizarre in Bel Air. They got deadbolts locked their doors and refused to open them. Their new landlady got creeped out and told them to leave. In February, Shantae called Parkway Motors in Cedar City, Utah, where her late husband, Ken, had been a great customer for years. She convinced them to give her a dark green 1997 Lincoln with tinted windows. She said that she wanted it delivered to the Regent Beverly Wilshire in Beverly Hills. Now, over the years, this was a big part of Shantae's scam she would convince people that she already had money so they wouldn't be suspicious. And part of the way that she did this was by having people deliver cars and other property to five-star hotels. Shantae promised them a car trade-in and $15,000 in return. When the couple selling them the car got to the hotel, they went to dinner with Shantae and Kenny. And Shantae drugged them. She slipped something into their drinks. They went to bed that night feeling dazed, and the next day when they woke up, they were suspicious that something had happened because neither of them drank, but they couldn't really prove anything. Shantae's $15,000 check bounced. She took the car out of state anyway, and a warrant was issued for her arrest. So she and Kenny started their cross-country road trip to New York City. She used a stolen credit card from someone in Florida to fund most of that trip. Shantae had a way of sweet-talking people. She had a source who gave her mortgage information on properties and could tell her who owned what and how much money was owed. For her New York trip, 
Shantae chose another one of her personas. She was impersonating a real estate broker named Joy Landis. Because, of course, real estate brokers have access to super sensitive information. Also, because real estate brokers are in this strange profession where, because of their job, people don't think anything of sharing information with them or inviting them into their homes. So that's how Shantae was able to convince a real estate agent who thought she was legit to give her information on high-end rentals in Manhattan. This estate agent told her about a butcher on the Upper East Side, and the butcher gave her the name of a woman who filled her home with interesting high-end tenants, Irene Silverman. Irene was born in New Orleans, and her parents were Greek immigrants. She grew up poor and came of age during the Depression. She became a dancer for the Radio City Music Hall Ballet Corps. At age 25, she married Sam Silverman, the millionaire real estate broker. The Silvermans rented out apartments in their townhouse for years. Then after Sam died, Eileen continued. He left her the house, which was valued at between seven and $10 million when he died. Irene's tenants loved her and she was very social. Shantae took on another persona, a secretary named Eva and called Irene Silverman. She told her that she had a perfect tenant for her, a young businessman named Manny Guerin. On June 14, 1998, Shantae and Kenny showed up at Irene's door. Kenny made a good first impression on Irene. He was well-dressed and well-spoken. Now, normally, Irene insisted on references before renting out her apartments. But Manny had something else that she wanted, a fat wad of cash all $6,000 rent paid in advance. Against her better judgment, Irene gave him the keys to apartment 1B. Almost immediately, after accepting Manny Guerin as a tenant, Irene Silverman was starting to regret her decision. Kent Walker wrote in his book that Shantae was what he called Jackie Collins rich. So, She preferred these vulgar displays of wealth. Everything was over the top. Her makeup, her furs, her plastic surgery. She had giant fake diamonds. Now, this may have worked in Las Vegas, but on the posh and understated old money Upper East Side, Kenny and Shantae stuck out, and not in a good way. Then there was his bizarre behavior. He was avoiding the security cameras and asking people questions about Irene's social security number. Irene told one of her employees that Kenny smelled like jail. The employee tried to warn her to stay away from this guy. But Irene was tough. She said, this is my house. I'll stay. He'll have to leave. So again, you have someone who knew that Kenny was a con artist. She clocked him pretty much immediately. But somehow, even though Irene was streetwise and a New Yorker, she somehow never imagined, even though this guy had invaded her home and was stealing from her, that he would physically hurt her or kill her. Meanwhile, Shantae and Kenny were tapping Irene's phone and watching her every move. On the nights when Shantae wasn't staying with Kenny, she would stay at the Plaza Athene Hotel nearby, paying with a stolen credit card. Their plan was to steal Irene's townhouse. But before they could steal the apartment, they needed that social security number. Shantae called and offered Irene a fake trip to Las Vegas, but Irene didn't bite. Again, Irene was someone who loved going to Paris and the opera, so a free trip to Las Vegas was not something that would appeal to her, even if it had been real. Shantae and Kenny generated a fake social security number. They started forging documents and made a copy of the title deed to the apartment and power of attorney documents. 
Shantae forged Irene's signature. She used the signature from the rental receipt as a template. During this time, Irene was trying everything she could think of to kick Kenny, a.k.a. Manny Guerin, out. When he didn't leave, she cut off the phone service to 1B and started eviction proceedings. Then there was the fateful weekend where Irene disappeared. Eventually, Shantae and Kenny got sick of waiting. So they forged Irene's signature on the deed of sale for the townhouse. Now they just needed to get it notarized. They called a notary public to come to their apartment. Shantae was wearing a nightcap and posing as Irene, who Kenny said was not well. But the first notary started to get a weird feeling. And without verifying Irene's signature and identity, the notary refused to notarize the document. A few days later, on July 2nd, Kenny brought in another notary, Noel Sweeney. When Noel Sweeney came in to apartment 1B, Shantae was wearing a red wig, a nightgown, and a nightcap. Although the notary didn't personally witness that signature, she allowed them to talk her into notarizing that document. Now they had everything they needed, so Kenny and Shantae waited for everyone to leave for the weekend. They went to Irene's apartment and knocked on the door. Kenny and Shantae were on the run, and they would be brought down not by a murder charge, but by the stolen car. They were arrested at the New York Hilton in Midtown on July 5th for stealing that Lincoln Town car from Utah. A New York City detective who was watching a TV news report on Irene's disappearance realized that Manny Guerin was in fact the Kenny Kimes they had in custody. They talked to police in California who were investigating the murder of David Kadzen, and they tracked down one of Shantae's associates, David McCarran. He told them that Kenny and Shantae had had him living in the house in Las Vegas, falsely listed him as the homeowner, and then burned the house down. They also found a man named Stan Patterson, who confessed that he had sold a handgun to Kenny. Stan agreed to cooperate with the police. In June 1998, Shantae called Stan and told him she wanted to sell a townhouse for $7.7 million. Of course, she meant Irene's building. She said she needed his help with some paperwork, so he headed to New York to meet her on July 5th. He was wearing a wire when they met at the New York Hilton in Midtown that night. Kenny showed up, and the FBI and NYPD moved in for the arrest. They searched the Lincoln Town Car. They found power of attorney forms with Irene's signature. They also found Social Security cards in Irene's name, and a Glock 9mm handgun, an empty box for a stun gun, ammunition, plastic handcuffs, two packages of syringes, and some sedative, which according to Vanity Fair, was approximately 10 times more powerful than Valium. Then they searched Shantae's hotel, they found a gym bag that she had checked. Inside was a forged deed that transferred Irene's townhouse to something called Atlantis Group Limited, one of the many shell corporations set up by Shantae Kimes. It took two years for this case to go to trial. And when it finally began in 2002, it was a spectacle. The prosecution had to make a case with no DNA evidence. There was no evidence in the townhouse or on Kenny or Shantae or in the car. So they focused on Shantae as the mastermind of the scheme to steal Irene's townhouse. They focused on motive. The New York Times wrote that Shantae and Kenny had murdered Irene in an elaborate plot that involved cheap disguises, false identities, tapped telephones, forged deeds, a stolen credit card, and at least three fake offers of Caribbean vacations. Kenny and Shantae's attorney made the argument that there was no blood or DNA to connect his clients with Irene. And the prosecution had another problem. Irene's body had not been found. 
After they were arrested, Shantae completely denied any involvement in the murder. And at trial, prosecutors were clearly worried that the jury might not understand the red-collar motive. The defense attorneys pointed out that if they were planning to defraud Irene, her unexplained disappearance wasn't a logical part of that. The defense attorneys were saying that fraud did not necessarily lead to murder. Shantae and Kenny were a spectacle at trial. They held hands and whispered to each other, and at one point, Shantae got into trouble for passing a note to a New York Times journalist. Finally, the judge told him to cut it out. Even with no DNA evidence, the jury unanimously voted to convict the people the tabloids were calling the grifters of Irene's murder and of 117 other charges, including robbery, burglary, conspiracy, grand larceny, forgery, and eavesdropping. They were both sentenced to over 120 years in prison, effectively to life. Kenny was sent to the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. But there were more crazy twists to come. In 2000, Kenny made headlines again when he did an interview with a court TV reporter named Maria Zone. He ended up grabbing her and holding a pin to her neck, holding her hostage for several hours. He eventually released her and she was okay but Kenny got eight years in solitary confinement for that stunt. He later claimed that he was attempting to stop his mother's extradition to California. Kenny and Shantae were set to go on trial there for killing David Kadzen. Shantae was extradited eventually, and in another surprising twist, Kenny testified against her. He also confessed to the murder of Irene Silverman so that he and his mother could avoid getting the death penalty. He told the court that he had killed Syed Ahmed, he said that his mother told him that they had to get rid of Syed after he got suspicious of those shady accounts in the Bahamas. He also confessed to the murder of David Kadzen. He said that he and his mother had killed Irene and dumped her body in a trash bin in Hoboken, New Jersey. He filled in the blanks on Syed's murder, too. He said that as many people suspected over the years, Syed had been getting suspicious. He had figured out that the documents that he and his mother sent him were forged, so they took him out to dinner that night, and afterwards they drugged him and drowned him. Shantae and Kenny were both tried and convicted in California of David Kadzen's murder. The judge in that case called Shantae one of the most evil individuals they had ever met. While he was in prison, he started corresponding with a writer named Tracy Faust. They fell in love. She became his companion until her death in 2013 of the flu and pneumonia. Shantae was incarcerated at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in Westchester. She died in prison in 2014 at the age of 79. And to the end, she always insisted that she and her son were the victims of a huge conspiracy and that they were completely innocent. After she died, Kenny finally gave more details about Irene Silverman's last moments on Earth. An article was published in Narratively in November 2018. In the article, Kenny talked about his childhood and said his mother completely enmeshed herself with him from a very young age. He was raised to believe that he had to protect her. In the article, he wrote, quote, The Bible says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. I thank God must have never met my mother, or he wouldn't say such a terrible thing, end quote. Kenny described in detail how his mother urged him to strangle Irene. He said once he had his hands around Irene's throat, he obeyed her. He wrote, quote, 
My hands are around Irene's neck, and I can feel the electricity pulsing through this tiny woman as I strangle the life out of her. I am terrified, but I keep my hands around her throat. I don't want to do this. I want to run. I want to jump on a plane and get as far away from New York City as I can. But I stay committed. Irene lays dead in my hands. She is so fragile, end quote. Afterwards, he put Irene's body into a bathtub. Then they grabbed her key ring. He remembered that she had tons of keys and it took a long time to find the right one to her door. Then they went into her apartment. Once they were inside, they took her social security card, her passport, and anything else that would help Shantae assume Irene's identity. He said they then stuffed her body into a duffel bag, loaded her into the trunk of the car that they had stolen. He wrote, quote, My mother directs me to put the body in a duffel bag. Her tone reminds me of how she spoke to me as a child. Kenny, get to bed. Kenny, brush your teeth. Kenny, put the body in the duffel bag, end quote. I do as I'm told, the obedient son, always, he wrote. They cleaned up the crime scene using rubbing alcohol. Then once the dirty work was done, and with Irene's body still in the trunk of that car. Incredibly, they went to Trump Tower and ordered pastries. Kenny wrote, We sit at a table drinking coffee and eating pastries. How f***ed up is this? A woman was murdered by the same hands, now wrapped around a cup of coffee. He was thinking about the horrific crime they'd just committed, when his mother said she was proud of him, telling him, You did good, Kenny. Kenny and Shantae were also suspected in the 1995 disappearance of Jacqueline Lovitz, a furniture heiress who disappeared from her home in Vicksburg, Mississippi. But I never saw the connection here. Other than the fact that both of these cases involved a socialite disappearing, there are really no similarities. When Jacqueline disappeared, there was lots of blood left behind, a bloody mattress that had been flipped over, and signs that there had been a violent fight at the scene. But we know that Kenny and Shantae preferred execution-style kills. They drugged their victims. They did whatever they could do to avoid getting themselves in any type of physical danger. In July 1998, the FBI announced that they had concluded that there was nothing that would indicate that the Kinses had anything to do with Levitz's disappearance. Kenny said that his relationship with the writer, Tracy, and her love for him had changed his life. He said it had shown him what love was, and he wrote that he now feels remorse for his crimes and understands the impact of what he's done. He said that he told his story as a cautionary tale for others. Irene Silverman's house finally found a buyer in 2001. After sitting on the market for a while in the New York Post nicknaming it the Death House, it was bought for reported $11.5 million. I think about Irene every time I walk down that block. How sad her story is, how pointless her death was because no one gained anything in the end. And it also really shows you that in a red-collar case, no matter how street smart the victim is, no matter how much money they have, no matter how many friends they have, if they are left alone with someone who wants to take something from them, their life is in danger. A lot of Irene's friends have asked why Kenny and Shantae did this to Irene and why they thought they could get away with it. She was telling people that Irene was their friend and that's why she transferred the title deed to her property and disappeared without a trace, which obviously made no sense. Irene had a lot of friends who cared about her. One of her ex-staff members who didn't stay with her that night says that he's racked with guilt. Irene's 15 to $20 million fortune was left to a foundation named after her mother. 
one of the directors of that foundation, told The Guardian, quote, Irene's fatal flaw was her utter confidence of being in control and her sense of security in that house where she felt safer than anywhere in the world, end quote. Shantae and Kenny may not have gotten away with stealing Irene's house, but that's of little comfort to the friends and tenants and people who loved her, who she left behind, because they did get away with killing her. To this day, Irene Silverman's body has never been found. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?